Hello and welcome to another episode of the Yang Gang Podcast. We're your host, Connor Maybon and Evan Schaub. With us this morning is Herb Stevens. He is a co-founder of Democracy Earth, a nonprofit building open source and censorship-resistant democracies. He's a proponent of UBI and will be speaking at the Universal Basic Income March here in San Francisco, which will be at the Civic Center Plaza at 1 to 4, Saturday, October 26th. Herb, thank you for being with us this morning. Great to be here. So before we get into the Universal Basic Income March and, and things of that nature, um, we would like you to just kind of explain your background um, and explain Democracy Earth. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, yeah, so I'm uh, uh, 53 years old. I've been a technologist uh, into computers and software since I was in junior high school. So the whole arc of my career has been uh, you know, in software and computers. So I've seen the, the internet grow up. Uh, uh, to where it is today. And so most of that time has been here in Silicon Valley for the good 25 years, uh, you know, through about six, seven different startup cycles, all on the proprietary um, uh, for-profit side of things. The last five years, I've been focused uh, on the nonprofit open source uh, uh, area, uh, specifically with Democracy Earth Foundation. Um, and the thread, I think, that runs through my career is that of uh, getting power to the people. Um, I, in, in certainly in the internet space, I've worked in e-commerce. And I've seen since the start of the internet just a real upside-down architecture, meaning that the providers of functionality being responsible for the data as well as for the authentication of the user. And I think that with blockchains, that's changing. And I saw uh, uh, it, it kind of early, and I saw it from a human rights standpoint. So. Democracy Earth Foundation, where I've, I'm a co-founder and been the last uh, five years, uh, going on five years, uh, really started in Argentina uh, uh, back in 2012. Uh, Co-founders uh, Santiago Siri and Pia Mancini actually started a political party in Argentina, uh, built software, some of the first open source software out there uh, called Democracy OS. It's still out there uh, on GitHub, still used by uh, uh, communities around the world. Uh, for voting. Uh, and in 2015, Y Combinator uh, brought them to Silicon Valley, uh, one of the first nonprofits that they backed. Uh, and I was introduced to them uh, through my daughter, who uh, at the time worked for Emerson Collective. Uh, and we're out uh, uh, you know, talking to a lot of uh, uh, powerful nonprofits uh, once they came here. So anyway, I was introduced to them, and we saw the intersection of democracy, uh, blockchains, and, um, and the internet in such a way that, uh, you know, one of the most important things uh, that I saw is getting the, the, the power of people's voice in their hands. So, uh, you know, since then we've built uh, a, a software that essentially is taking uh, corruption out of uh, uh, democracies around the world. Um, and that's 50% of my job right now. The other 50% is a finance director for my daughter's uh, U.S. Congress campaign, uh, Agatha Basilar, running for U.S. Congress uh, here in the 12th District against Nancy Pelosi. I did not know Agatha was your daughter. That's, that's really cool. Um, at, yeah, we actually are interviewing her later today. <laughs> yeah, I found that out yesterday. Uh, we try to keep our calendars pretty tight, but she said, I'm, I'm, you know, these things come up last minute and says, I'm, I'm on Yang Gang podcast tomorrow. And I said, so am I. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, we're both speaking at the UBI March. Uh, and just to tie things together, uh, at the Democracy Earth Foundation, uh, 
one of the things that we implemented uh, in our in our software is actually the delivery mechanism for a universal basic income. Uh, we can probably get into that uh, in depth uh, later, but uh, you know, UBI has been um, uh, an issue of mine for a long time. Um, I we I presented my white paper, our our white paper at Democracy Foundation at the annual BN conference, which is the Universal Basic Income Conference, and so. Uh, you know, the Democracy Earth, uh, 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 basically architecture of our software is designed in such a way to deliver uh, universal basic income uh, to the world. How were you, how were you first introduced to this idea of universal basic income? Where did you first hear about it? Um, and what was your initial reaction to it? Yeah, um, you know, I'm a systems guy, and I look at universal basic income a little differently than most people. A lot of people see it as like giving money away, uh, like a social uh, issue, and and that it is. It, it it certainly is. But from a system standpoint, I see it as as liquidity, and I see it as a signal of of demand. Uh, and and let me explain a little bit. It's 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 pretty complicated, but uh, most systems don't work without liquidity. And certainly if you look at our economic system, um, you know, we, we rely on uh, uh, this liquidity for the signaling of demand. And unfortunately, the way money is created and injected into our economy is, is really a top-down, trickle-down way. Uh, money is created through commercial loans, uh, uh, people, businesses, really businesses borrowing from commercial banks, uh, and the banks, commercial banks, having a, an account with the Fed and borrowing from them. Um, and I worked at GE Capital. My, my degree is in financial administration, uh, you know, how to run a bank. Uh, and GE Capital is where I spent a lot of my time working internationally. So I really understand money and international flows of money as well as the corporate side of it. So money is injected into society um, top down by a business asking for a loan and then money coming in and then that business putting that money to work. That type, that says that the supply side determines uh, what is produced. And so I see it from money actually should be injected into society directly to the people and that will produce the demand that tells the producers what to produce. I also see it from a standpoint of General liquidity systems don't work without uh, enough liquidity. Engines don't work with oil, sort of like that. Mm -hmm. I also see it from another perspective in that um, you guys are probably familiar with Ray Kurzweil. Um, vaguely, yes. Ray Kurzweil is one of the smartest guys on the planet. He's a futurist. He now works at Google. He's a huge entrepreneur. He started, you know, 20 plus ventures. You know, he was on a podcast recently and they, they, you know, and they said, you know, we did the numbers and you're probably the most accurate person on the planet predicting things out at least 10 years. Give us your number one prediction at least 10 <laughs> years out, right? Right off the top of his head, he didn't pause or hesitate. He said, no one's going to be working or no one's going to have to work in about 30 years, right? Wow. And so I started thinking about that. And you think about Andrew Yang out there talking about technology eating up jobs and, and that. And it certainly is, right? And it's starting with the, the we call low-tech jobs. Some of those we'd probably say shouldn't exist. Who wants to just sit there and do something mindless for X number of hours when some, a machine could do it? 
Mm-hmm. And we all used to be as agrarian society. I don't know what the numbers are, but 80, 90% of us had to grow our own food and we spent so much time working. So if you look at the arc of that trajectory and you think where we are today, and if Ray Kurzweil is right, where we need to get, say, 30 years from now, not working, how do we distribute those resources out to people? Hmm. And, and so our, according to our calculations, we, we should be distributing about 15% of annual salary out to people right now and stepping that up around 3 to 4% each year until we get to 100%. Hmm. So I look at it a little differently systematically and I look and, and uh, you know, so you, the question was, is how do I get it? How did I get into this? Well, mm-hmm. thinking through a lot of the, the issues, um, w- w- we saw that, uh, you know, with the advent of, 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 of blockchains and, 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 and Bitcoin, this really was a, a watershed moment in the technology space. It, it enabled the internet architecture itself to flip and it enabled us to get rid of uh, a lot of the middlemen, uh, escrow agents, those that slow things down. When I first started getting into universal basic income, uh, the person I read most was Professor Guy Standing. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Guy Standing. No, we're not. Okay, you should be. He's probably the biggest advocate of, of universal basic income uh, in the world. Uh, he has written a number of books. Uh, he's done field, a lot of field work, uh, mostly in India, but other places of the world. He founded the BN, which is the National Basic Income Society, about 25 or 30 years ago. And uh, his latest book called uh, The Corruption of Capitalism is a wonderful read. Uh, I actually did a Medium post on it. Uh, it's basically the, the takeaway is it no longer pays to work. Now, I, I, I presented our white paper from Democracy Earth Foundation uh, at his annual conference over in Portugal at the Lisbon School of Economics. And uh, in my conversations with him, I asked him, you know, what is the biggest obstacle to getting universal basic income out there? Right away, he said distribution. He said, it's not a funding problem and it's not a will problem. It's a distribution problem. We just can't get it into the hands of people around the world. It's the most difficult thing with these third-party institutions, these banks, these different layers. And I said, Guy, I said, I'm working on the solution. And that's exactly what we're doing. And universal basic income is going to be delivered directly to people, directly to citizens, via their uh, uh, smartphone. Uh, it may be done, done uh, from the government, but I see it as, as <clears throat> done more on a global basis rather than a national basis. Wow. Um, we actually had uh, someone named Ken Fisher on the podcast yesterday who uh, is a documentary filmmaker, and he um, had the exact same experience. He said, the biggest problem that we face is not pilot programs. It's not getting things started. It's not even spreading the idea. It's just finding a way to distribute the funds in what is a way that, that is not going to be compromised or exploited or things of that nature. That's um, right. Yeah. So... I guess explaining, so Democracy Earth, so your, I guess your website says you enable token-based community participation, open source, peer-to-peer, and human-centered. Um, could you explain that to me like I'm a third grader? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so just, uh, and it's, 
you know, we work more outside the United States than we do in the United States for, for some obvious reasons. Uh, you know, democracy is under threat here in the United States, but the truth is, is that more of the world does not live in democracy than they do in democracy. And so our customers, if you will, are the dissidents of the world. Our customers are those that are fighting uh, a dictator or someone that's in power uh, just, just to implement democracy. And when I use the word democracy, I want to be a little careful. Um, places like China and other places, we're, we're not pushing democracy with a capital D. We're pushing power to the people. We're, we're fighting the shift of power that has definitely been shifted over to the corporate and institutional and governmental side in the last decades to the point where there's more power on that side than there is with the people. So um, we are trying to get that shift. We're fighting that shift and we're trying to get power directly in the hands of the people. Now, the interesting thing that's happened with the advent of smartphones and blockchains and other technologies, it's not just blockchains, uh, is that um, you can deliver that, you can shift that power. No longer does your ID need to sit with that authenticator. Uh, that whole redundant layer of the internet is going away and going away rapidly. Uh, the smartphone has, has, has done a number of things, and, and I'll, I'll just quickly go through why that is become your ID and why at Democracy Earth we sort of took ID out of the equation. And I'll, I'll sort of mm -hmm. say what I mean about that. A lot of people talk about self-sovereign uh, uh, IDs and that self-sovereignty has landed right at, at the palm of your hand in, in, in hardware. Uh, hardware that today bridges the biometric gap, meaning it can do an effective facial recognition scan. It can do your heartbeat. It can do voice recognition. It can triangulate all of these with location and it can keep securely on the secure enclave chip, meaning it's not touching any network. So right there, you've got your self-sovereign ID. And interestingly enough, what you have, so what you have um, with blockchains, and let me just say, it's, it's not about blockchains. To me, it's about the PKI uh, infrastructure, the public key infrastructure, and getting that distributed out there. What that means is people now on these personal IDs in their hand, they have the keys to their shit, right? Mm -hmm. They have the keys to their money. They have the keys to their assets. They have the keys to their voice and their vote and their money, right? Hmm. Right now, the reason there's so much stress <laughs> in society, the reason that so many problems exist, the reasons we're hacked and so much happens is this awful architecture where our keys are sitting with someone else. Hmm. Right. Wow. wow. So every time you go and ask for something, you know, not only is it not your property and literally like your money and your data and everything, keys are sitting with someone else. So at Democracy Earth Foundation, we, we, we first of all saw that corruption today all around the world, no matter what type of corruption you're talking about, is in one place. It's in a spreadsheet or a database. Hmm. Period. Period. Right. So is oh. this is this kind of th sorry to interrupt just for yep. a minute, but is this kind of going through the vein of I, I believe Andrew Yang has mentioned where data rights should be absolutely in, involved with human rights now? Absolutely. We need to start having that discussion. Absolutely. He said the other day, and he's absolutely right. Data is more valuable than oil, hmm. right? Yeah. And this is why, if you think about it, 
Google and Facebook and the others make so much money. They're just sitting on the data and they're making use of that data and mining it and wrecking our democracy by not being responsible with it. Right. And do you think that's because like maybe politicians just simply do not understand what exactly they're dealing with? I mean, we've seen this a lot with, uh, you know, um, with internet issues, uh, net neutrality, it seems like the, the politicians working on it have little to no knowledge, real knowledge about, about this stuff. You know, absolutely. I mean, you go to Washington and look, I, I have a lot of respect for government. Uh, and we in the United States should be happy. We've got the best one around, right? And, mm -hmm. and we can complain all day long at the same time. Uh, I think there are a lot of factors why uh, uh, the government isn't getting it. One, it runs on uh, you know, seniority, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at our Congress and they're writing our laws and our laws are very important to business. I mean, uh, I, I have watched so many uh, startups in the blockchain space either not incorporate here, leave here or avoid, you know, the United States entirely because of our lack of clear uh, 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 crypto regulation, as well as, uh, you know, taxation and a number of other issues. Uh, it's, it's just awful. So it is an issue, and I think it's an issue because of age. I think that the average age of the leadership there at the, at the, at the House and certainly the Senate is in the 70s and 80s, uh, and they just didn't grow up with the Internet. They don't understand technology, and they don't understand a, a global uh, world, right, really. Uh, yeah. If you really look at those senators, those crotchety senators that are sitting there, uh, they, you know, uh, it's a changed world and it's a flattened world. And the same iPhone that, uh, you know, we enjoy here, everyone else in the world does as well and is connected to the same internet. And I, I don't think they quite get how the borders have, uh, have changed. And they're, they seem to be more comfortable with just keeping, you know, business as usual when really, you know, with, and as Andrew Yang points out, it's like we need 21st century solutions to 21st century problems, but they seem to be content with just doing business as usual as if, like you said, the being stuck in like the seventies and eighties kind of thing. And, and that's, that's hurting us in, to a degree. That's right. Hurt. That's right. And, and I'm not an ageist. I, and I don't want to throw out the wisdom that the, the, the sure. that those people hold, but they have to also, uh, you know, accept younger leadership. It, it's the reason my daughter's running for Congress uh, is, is that she's, she's an engineering, you know, student from Stanford and cares about these issues and doesn't see her generation represented in Congress. So that's it. So back to democracy earth though. And uh, you know, sort of what we do there. Yeah. And so if you go to democracy.earth, probably what you see there, it looks like a, a Twitter feed almost. And essentially what that is, is it's, it's fed by crypto. And what that means is, is like, you can propose any question, you can say whatever you want. It's sort of like Twitter, but there's tools associated with voting uh, uh, behind it as well. So what that means is, is you go there and I don't know, you guys have digital wallets like MetaMask? Are you um. familiar with? I'm familiar with them, yeah. Okay, so you know, if you have a digital wallet, and again, I'll get back to the PKI and why, why that's really the heartbeat of, of the change in the internet. If you have a wallet and you sign into our site, what that means is it sort of looks in your wallet and whatever tokens you have, it enables you to participate in discussions and votes if you have those tokens in your wallet. Hmm. All right, so let's say you show up, okay, you got Ethereum, the number one, uh, you know, uh, cryptocurrency out there. 
or I'm, I'm sorry, then some number two, number two, but Ethereum is, is one of the more common uh, transitional currencies in and out of others. So most people have Ethereum in their, in their MetaMask wallet. MetaMask was created by the same group that uh, created the uh, uh, co-founder, Joe Lubin, who created Ethereum. So you go uh, there and you've got Ethereum and a few other tokens in your wallet. Every discussion at Democracy Earth started with an Ethereum token you can participate in. Huh. Right? Yeah. And so, and or you can create a different token and start your own discussion. Now, it's up to you how you distribute that token, right? And that becomes the group that can vote in various ways, right? Yes. So if you think about that, uh, let's just take it to normal voting here in the United States. What would happen? What would happen is, is that, let's say, the district here in San Francisco uh, would issue their own token. And just like their normal voter registration process, rather than given a paper ballot, which you could give, be given one in conjunction and scan it and do all this other stuff and encrypt it, but you're given a digital token right? That says you have the right to vote. Why? Because that person showed up, they showed me their iPhone, we scanned their ID, you know, we looked at them, we did all this, the normal in-person, you know, analog way of verifying a voter. But the difference is, is now the city or the, the district has directly scanned and has your, if you will, Swiss bank account number, your digital public uh, key number, right? Yeah. So now you can start to see how... <clears throat> Voting can be easily distributed, voted can be measured, it can be audited, it can be public, and still privacy uh, uh, maintained. That's fascinating. So where does this concept of quadratic voting, I saw that word being used on the website. I, I just wanted to ask just because I'm, I'm unfamiliar with that, that concept. Yeah, yeah, great question. Quadratic voting is, is, is basically uh, the tool used against plutocracy. Okay, so uh, plutocracy obviously is, you know, the, the, the one with the most money wins, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. in, in, in the cryptocurrency world, those with the most crypto win, you know, if, 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 if you're just going to vote based on who holds the most, right? So what quadratic voting does, and are you guys familiar with the book uh, Radical Markets? I'm not. Okay, Radical Markets, it's, it's a bestseller. It's written by uh, uh, Professor Glenn Weil. Uh, he's a pr uh, Princeton uh, professor. Uh, advocate of, of cryptocurrencies, uh, super smart guy. Uh, he wrote this book, Radical Markets. And one of the chapters, he has a number of concepts, not all of them I agree with, but one of them I certainly agree with is, is quadratic voting. And against, essentially, he did the math. <laughs> Much like Andrew Yang does the math, right? <laughs> Data-oriented. Yeah, data-oriented. <laughs> Let's actually do this the proper way. He did the math and he said, oh, you want to solve plutocracy. The best way to do it in democracy is quadratic voting, meaning, okay, you want to put one vote on it? Great. That'll cost you one. You want to put two votes on it? That'll cost you four. You want to put three votes on it? It'll cost you nine. You want to put five? It'll cost you 25. So it becomes exponentially expensive the more you want to influence an election. Now, how does that play out? It plays out in um, one of our cases right now, uh, and, and it's Glenn who sort of brought us in uh, to this customer. Uh, the state of Colorado is, 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 has implemented it and using it in some, in some use cases there. Um, and essentially what it does is 
today when you're a legislator and you have all these things in front of you, uh, okay, you vote yes, 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 or, or yes, no, yes, no, 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 no. Well, you're not putting any uh, relative preference on anything. And so what quadratic voting does and what they're doing in Colorado is, okay, legislator, here's your hundred tokens and there are your hundred issues you're going to vote on. How do you distribute those? Now, you could take all those hundred and say, you know, I'm a one issue person. I put all those on this issue right here. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So what that means, it's going to cost you, though, those, you know, you you don't get, you know, you have to do it quadratically. Right. So Mm -hmm. it costs you more. So what it does is it actually introduces scarcity and preference into the legislative process and the voting process. Now, that's not going to be for every situation, but it's one of those things like I said, you know, we have democratic tools on the back end of democracy earth. That's one of them. Right. Mm -hmm. Another one is just straight up liquid democracy where you can actually give your vote to someone else. And however they vote, it drags your vote along with it. Right. Mm-hmm. We've also seen ranked choice voting, which we have here in, in San Francisco, which in the last mayor's race, we saw it actually determined who became mayor. Right. When you have a lot of candidates, ranked choice actually introduces. And we, we, New York Times did a study that if ranked choice were in place for Donald Trump, he would have come in last place. Wow. Wow. Right. New York Times did a great article on that. And basically, because, yeah, if you take 100 and you just divide it up, oh, I've got 14 percent. I win. But head to head against everyone else, it was said, oh, no, I'd rather have that person over Donald. And everyone answered that way, right? Hmm. Right. But he had his base of 14%. So he was able to slide right through, even though, you know, let's say the 96% hated him. So that's quadratic voting. That's fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. So transitioning, I guess, back to the basic income march. um, We actually got in contact uh, through David Lee, who I know is running a lot of things out here in San Francisco. Um, Do you know, um, I guess, any more information about this that maybe we don't know that you can tell our listeners? Um, Do you know what you're going to talk about during your speech? Yeah, yeah. You know, we're, we, um, I, I, we do have a call set up uh, where we're going to, we're going to finalize it. Um, But uh, you know, I think there's five or six different speakers. I know uh, Agatha is going to be speaking, uh, talking about her campaign and her support of UBI. Um, I'll be talking about it from, you know, some of the standpoints that, uh, you know, I mentioned today. Uh, I, I, I want people to um, support public banking. Uh, I'm going to be talking about that a little bit. And that's a, a new legislation here in San Francisco. Again, it's, it's enabling people to control their money a lot more. Uh, uh, than they do today and it gets gets power back to the communities i'm from flint michigan um i i care about that community i actually have been working with uh different uh you know city and county officials over the last few years to to help that and i think universal basic income is one of those and so we're going to be talking about things like that nice nice um i guess one question that we ask most people who come on and this kind of might sound like out of left field is what would you do with an extra thousand dollars a month? (laughs) You know, that's actually um, uh, a a very interesting question. I'm going to answer it in a different way. And um, in something I didn't cover, but is covered in our white paper. A thousand dollars a month is, is, is totally wrong way to look at it. And I'm Mm going to explain why. Mm -hmm. Um, 
hmm. I, 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 I don't have um, uh, a bright outlook on the U.S. dollar, right? Interesting. Uh, I think it's going to crash and it's going to crash very hard, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about times when inflation hits and currencies spiral and hyperinflation hits, you know, we haven't lived through those, but it's immediate. It happens all around the world and it's going to happen here in the United States. My co-founder from Argentina, his family lived through uh, a number of those. And if you look at terms, things in terms of absolute dollars in a particular currency, um, you start to get in trouble, uh, meaning one day that's $1,000, tomorrow it's worth 500 and the next 250 and the day after that, 100 And that type of inflation is, exists in Venezuela today. In an economy where it was the richest country in South America, and just because of some political actions and a dictator, things spiral out of control, your family loses all their, all their wealth, and $1,000 is worth shit, hmm. right? Yeah. If you look, uh, so I advocate, and, and this is a whole other discussion, that we need to change the discussion around our currencies, and we need to make a global currency that is based in time. And that's exactly how we architected our uh, stable coin, uh, the vote token at uh, Democracy Earth. We based it in time. Uh, Blockchains make wonderful clocks. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what I'm saying is 75% of the world is paid uh, on an hourly basis. When they get paid, oftentimes they're in these hyperinflation economies. They need to uh, quickly get out of that uh, currency, trade it into something else, or it's going to be worth less tomorrow. They're not going to be able to buy their food, pay their rent, whatever. So they get into US dollars, they get into Bitcoin, they get into other things. They go through transaction costs. We need to transition as a world to paying people based in a currency that is actually based in time, where one hour equals one unit of currency. Wow. Right? Yeah, Yeah. I see what you're saying. You see what I'm saying? Where tomorrow, one equals one. A week from now, one equals one. So if I save, I, 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 I work hard, I bank my time. It's not worth less tomorrow. Hmm. Right? Yeah. And so what we have to do is say, and, and guess what? That now can trade on a global market. You want to trade your hour? Hey, no longer can you pay that woman in India $2 an hour and that man in San Francisco $500 an hour. Right? We're going to have to have different, different discussions. I would argue, and I always argue, everyone's time on earth is equal. This is the source of inequality. We need yeah. to recognize that and, and look, what you can do with that hour, yeah, is very different. Because I have this education, this experience, these contacts, I can produce a lot in an hour. So let's change the discussion and not pay people and discriminate by the hour and say, let's pay you on what you can do in that hour. Um, you know, I look at it very differently, and I, I think I, I come from a, I, I'm from Michigan. I kind of grew up in a Republican family, but then I traveled around the world and ended up in San Francisco. And I, I, I can say I'm neither a Democrat nor a Republican. I think that reflects a lot of the, the younger generations as well and the rest of the world. And, um, you know, trying to point fingers, uh, you know, in any situation isn't the best way to get to a solution. You know, blaming the left, blaming the right, blaming the rich, blaming the poor, you know, blaming uh, the Republicans or the Democrats or any other party. So 
I look at it like very simply in terms of this. And this is a very, very simple analogy that I think most people can understand. We're at the end of a global monopoly game, right? Mm -hmm. Monopoly game itself was created by a woman. She created it for the reasons to, to warn against the downsides of capitalism. That if you just let capitalism run amok, what happens is, is sure enough, money makes money and it accumulates to a few, just like in Monopoly. And at the end of the game, you end up with one or two people, or very few, you know, with all of the hotels, all the properties, all the cash, mm -hmm. and everyone else is just trying to, you know, struggle to lap around the board and collect their $200, right? Mm -hmm. So I see it like, in, in, and again, systemically looking at the numbers, doing the math, we're really at the end of this big global monopoly game where the money has accumulated to a few and the rest are struggling. And the solution to that, certainly politically, is to just reset the game and do the same thing you would in, in, in let's say, a, a, a fake game monopoly. And I use the word fake <laughs> kind of interestingly because if you think about our laws and our money, it's all fake anyway. We made it all up. And, and, <laughs> yes. and, and, it, and when you're making software, I mean, one of the things you always realize is that you can't code for every eventuality. Right. And this is why eventually computers need to be rebooted. You know, you know, things get to a certain point where things are leaking. There's just so many different things going on. You can't account for them all. You just have to go, okay, time out. I'm not going to blame the computer or blame the software. I'm just going to unplug it, plug it back in. And that's what I think we need for the world. We need a reset. We need a simple reset that says, okay, and if you think about the money that's been distributed and accumulated, these days you could replace it just like we add a new currency, we you know, the euro came around you, you, with a push of a button, mm -hmm. right? With yeah. a push of a button, we could distribute to every citizen, that, everyone that has a phone, and even beyond. Like you can now send something to somebody that doesn't have an account and only they can log into it. I mean, look at the way uh, uh, you know, a lot of the crypto stuff is, is architected. Um, especially key base, right? So um, the point is, is that you could reset this big monopoly game uh, quite simply by distributing this right out to someone. You've got a new currency. And think about the world. Just think about it for a second. If everyone woke up on a, on a particular morning and they had, let's say, $10,000 right there in their phone, right? A new okay. currency, everyone's using it. And it's going to be, you know, a certain amount just coming to your phone every month or even every hour, right, that you could count on. And then a mechanism whereby you could earn more on top of that. So I see it as just a simple reset. I think we need to do that. I think we don't have to, you can't claw back all the existing money, but by distributing the new money, like this whole new monopoly game is starting. It's, it's, it's also a way, you know, two big models in my life are Martin Luther King and uh, Gandhi. Martin Luther King, when he was assassinated, he wasn't working on racial issues. He was working on economic issues. He said, freedom was not enough. You guys already divvied up everything. You can't drag us over here and then just give us freedom and, and not like get us, give us a part of the game. And essentially what he was talking about is restarting the monopoly game. And huh. that's what I would advocate wow. for. And we can do it. We have the technology and we can do it at the push of a button. And it might be uncomfortable at first, but on the other side of it is, is greener pastures, I think.
I, I don't think it'll be uncomfortable at all. I think no. the minute that hits everyone's wallet, <laughs> I mean, yeah. th- yeah. I mean okay. think about what yeah. people can do. Look, and, and if you've got debt and you pay it off, the person that held the debt now is better off, right? Yeah. It's a win-win-win all the way around, right? Yeah. And it's a way to like really signal with dollars, right? If you want to vote with, really vote with your currency, and this is where the, the, the lines are really blurred. And if you really look deep into our uh, white paper, Democracy Earth, you can see this. Citizens United decision really blurred the lines between what is currency and what is voice, right? Mm-hmm. And digital world is blurring that even further, right? So we can distribute this voice out to people, they can signal with it, and it can jumpstart the economy. Um, well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. We really appreciate your time. That has been Herb Stevens, the co-founder of Democracy Earth, a nonprofit building open source and censorship-resistant democracies. He will be speaking at the Universal Basic Income March here in San Francisco at the Civic Center Plaza between the hours of 1 and 4 p.m. Saturday, October 26th. Herb, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's been absolutely a pleasure talking with you. You're welcome. Uh, great to be here.